0: Uh, seriously, folks. Um, I'd like to do three things in my allotted time. Every sermon has three points. Um, and my time is now, I believe, Ethan said 47 seconds. So, um, first of all, provide a brief sketch of Grace Church's beginnings. Secondly, highlight a few lessons learned, if I can offer a few. And I'm sure some of these will be echoed by, by Ethan. And then share very briefly how exactly the harps have benefited from Grace Anglican. That will be brief because I'll get choked up and you don't want to see that. Um, Canadians get emotional. It's unusual. and It's
1: it's
0: unpleasant. Um, One, I wish I could say uh, that I always had faith that my prayers for an Anglican church plant would be answered. Actually, when God did finally answer our prayers, I'd mostly given up. Um, uh, quite a while ago, quite a, a time before that. And he, of course, answered them in a gigantic way that I never anticipated. Uh, I'm reminded of the, uh, uh, of the little book um, uh, by, uh, by Phillips, Your God is Too Small. I definitely learned that uh, in our experience here. So let me tell you a little bit about our experience in planting Grace Anglican. When the Harps moved to Grove City in 1999, it quickly became clear that there wasn't a solid Episcopal church within a reasonable drive. So we quickly thought, OK, well, we'll attend a, a Presbyterian church. Um, and um, and we were there for a while and uh, met some wonderful people, uh, enjoyed the wonderful ministry. But we quickly came to miss the traditional prayer book. And so I thought, well, one option here would be to get uh, a captive audience, you know, some students over at the college and organize a small student group to read Evening Prayer and Harvest in Chapel once a week. And when we did that, we considered ourselves blessed if, you know, five or six students showed up. And by the way, Megan Maley was one of them. Where is she? Um, And Arthur Kane was another one. These are the faithful, the real believers. Um, They listened to my... My lengthy exhortations, and uh, no, we didn't. We just read the prayer book. Um, Eventually, we talked to uh, Rod Whitaker at Trinity Seminary in Ambridge to offer maybe like a monthly, he could, you know, drive up here to the snows of northwestern PA and offer a monthly service, uh, holy Communion service, in 15 Chapel in uh, Tower Church. And I think we had maybe a maximum of 10 people to attend that uh, off and on. Eventually, Rod, who was very sweet and kind, very generous with his time. Uh, he was busy writing wonderful IVP comment, commentary on John's gospel. He had to bow out. At this point, we received some encouragement from a, a number of different sources, one Matt Beatty who's no longer here. I wish he could be here tonight and some other key college people. And they said that I should explore plans uh, to really plant a church. Let's let's do this, they said. And I thought, "Oh yeah, right, sure." Uh, that's going to happen. They said, no, no, really, you should talk to uh, the Episcopal Church, you should talk to maybe the Reformed Episcopal Church, there's maybe somebody in this area from there, uh, from that uh, denomination you could speak to. And so in the end, I ended up talking to both. You see, off and on, we'd been attending St. Christopher's Episcopal Church uh, in Cranberry, and we'd enjoyed getting to know the Reverend Paul Cooper there. So uh, one day, and uh, I don't remember the exact date. Maybe Paul can uh, come up with that. We met, Paul and I met one December lunchtime at Elephant Castle to discuss some sort of church plant in Slippery Rock. Now, why Slippery Rock? Of course, it had to do with diocesan boundaries. This was a time when uh, the, um, uh, the Diocese of Pittsburgh had not liberated itself from the Episcopal Church yet. And so um, Paul pointed out Slippery Rock hey, it's just <coughs> down the road. But it's across the county line, and therefore in the diocese of Pittsburgh, and not in the less desirable diocese of northwestern PA.
1: <laughs> much
0: trying to be positive, keep it on a positive note here. Um, much to my surprise, I laid out this sort of vision. You know, what's my fantasy of you know the perfect church? And much to my surprise, uh, Paul, whose churchmanship is maybe a little bit different from mine. Uh, agreed. And he said, that sounds like a great idea, that an unapologetically low church, evangelical Anglican church plant in Slipper Rock is a good idea. It's it's a feasible idea. I was stunned. I was surprised, uh, delighted by his response. And soon, monthly services at Highland Presbyterian began. And they've been, of course, so kind and generous to us uh, over the years. Paul also said that he had this great seminarian in mind for the project, Some uh, whippersnapper by the name of Ethan Magnus. And so Paul and I soon had lunch with Ethan. And um, Ethan, you can close your ears now. I'm going to say some some things that are very uh, positive and affirming.
1: (laughs) I I don't
0: think you need any more affirmation. It's probably. Ethan was a breath of fresh air, a young Christian who loved the core truths rediscovered at the time of the Reformation. For example, when I asked him about maybe could we use the 28 prayer book, his response was, well, actually, I prefer
1: 1662.
0: I I was in love. Uh, I realized I'd made a good friend. But I I never, uh, there was one other sort of minor issue we were eating over in Slippy Rock. Actually, I think it was before... uh, before North Country. We weren't at North Country for some reason. Uh, serious oversight. It was the only time that I've ever seen anyone order both french fries and mozzarella sticks. At, at the same time. But I digress. Anyway. Foolishly, at the time, just to show how, um, to show how out of it I was, I, I didn't, it didn't click. I didn't realize how Ethan would connect so well especially with younger folks, especially college kids from an evangelical background. I didn't think of any of that at the time. Of course, it soon became uh, very clear. Again, uh, my God was too small. Now, if I could just offer very quickly, and I, I'm well over my time by now, but just some lessons learned. Uh, here, are, uh, here, are but a, here are but a few. Uh, a. Uh, there are very few good church-planting guides out there for small-town rural America. Um, I think there are one or two, but they weren't very helpful. And it's amazing how much of the stuff we looked at either wasn't helpful or we actually directly and repeatedly violated.
1: <laughs> Apparently
0: with impunity. I mean, you know, look around. Uh, B, word of mouth is by far the most effective way to grow a church. Advertising is mostly a waste of time and money. I, actually, Ethan learned that very quickly. It took me a while. I had a great idea of a project of sending out postcards. And we got all these postcards, and we spent a lot of money on Did absolutely nothing. It was a complete waste of time. Anyway, it seemed like a good idea to me. See, many folks, Christians and non-Christians, are not being nourished by what Mike Horton has aptly called the Christless Christianity on offer in too many churches today. That's something I learned early on, and so what we were doing was actually different and distinctive. D, the traditional prayer book and its atonement-focused theology is an incredibly precious resource, and it's attractive to a wide swath of people today across generations, not just, you know, to old bogies like me. E, Uh, The need for a clear New Testament teaching on justification by the unmerited imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness may be as greatly needed now as it was at the time of the Reformation. F. uh, You can make lots of mistakes, uh, I know I did, and stumble around when planting a new congregation. But if Jesus Christ, his person and work, is the centerpiece of the preaching, as it always has been, praise God for Ethan uh, and now for Eric, uh, and of the worship offered, God will bless your efforts. Maybe not immediately, and probably not in always the exact same way that you expect. Sometimes Barbara and I, make we laugh uh, about what our original vision was for Grace Anglican. Our attitude was, well, if, um, if we get seven or eight people and we hire a you know a retired clergyman, a very elderly person that could really underpay,
1: that would be
0: a great success. That would really be, you know, we would be doing well. Needless to say, it's, you know, gone a little better than that. Uh, to end on a personal note, it's been such an immeasurable blessing to help plant Grace Anglin, and, of course, to attend weekly services for a decade now. Uh, and to have our three daughters, two of whom are here. The other is in Paris, so we're letting her off. Uh, grow up in the church. I thank, I can't thank God enough, nor can I thank uh, Paul and Ethan enough. Just very quickly, I know they're probably going to do this too, but I wanted to just mention a few folks who were also with us at the very beginning uh, and have been such a huge help. Uh, T. David Gordon and Diane Gordon. You know that making those, um, those meals... Uh, I'm not quite sure why we did that so long, but we did it for a long time, and it was a lot of work, and she organized it brilliantly. Betty Tallarico, wherever you are, uh, uh, also an enormous help in the beginning. The Carters, I really miss uh, Ken, uh, and so grateful, of course, for Bev and her uh, music ministry, which was just amazing. Rick Grossman, who discovers this on the internet. It is a good idea to have a good website. Um, And uh, uh, Emily Lawrence now. Uh, Emily Jeffress uh, was also one of the people who came to the early, and I should have mentioned that, who came to the early uh, evening prayer uh, service. Gary uh, Beck, God bless him, I miss him. Uh, another fellow who was very faithful, sometimes brought his bagpipes with him. Um, <laughs> but let me just close by saying solely Deo Gloria.
2: sure anybody knows what I'm (laughs) going to say. I've worked hard on this opener. Ethan Magnus is the most unlikely church planter in the history of church planting. (laughs) (laughs) It was 11 years ago that, um, Gillis was right. We had a couple conversations, um, and I, um, I could talk too long too, but I remember our early conversations, Gillis, um, I remember saying to you at one point, uh, no, I will not come to Grove City and do a service because I don't want to be the Harp family chaplain. I mean, I didn't, I didn't mean that to be mean because I said what, what we need to do is plant a church. And his eyes kind of got big. Um, and I actually remember the day I was driving in my car talking to Ethan. And I said, I have a great idea of something that I think you should do. Um, and he said, no, you um, would not plant a church and then um, I said, why don't you think about it? I'll call you back in 10 minutes. And um,
1: <laughs> um,
2: But but what I knew is that um, that, that many of you, uh, Gillis and Barbara, you knew. Um, Mary Hayes, you're in the room, you knew. Um, a woman by the name of Erba, who none of you probably know, um, knew is that the Lord was preceding what happened here. Um, that there was a vision for a church uh, in this area. Um, and so 11 years ago, we picked up on those conversations and... Um, and where other people had been dreaming, this new experiment we tried. And uh, I was there, as some of you were, in the spring of 2006. The first service, we hoped that people might come. And, uh, and I said to Ethan beforehand, like, what are you, what are you hoping for? And he's like, I, I think I'd be happy if 40 people came. Um, and, uh, and almost 100 were there that night. What we said—it never matters who comes the first time. What matters is who comes back on the second week, right? And um, and it was it was great on that first night. Um, I heard a sermon from Ethan that wasn't about church planting. It wasn't about being Anglican. It was about Jesus. And Ethan the Unlikely, as is his name. Uh, <laughs> The As you all know him, the outrageously gifted preacher of the gospel. Um, the Lord did something through him that we never saw coming. Um, I've known Ethan since he was 14. That means I met him 22 years ago. I was his youth director at, a, at what I affectionately call St. Peter's Stiff-Neck Reform Church.
1: <laughs>
2: and, uh, and there's one thing I love about Ethan is, is that whatever Ethan loves, you know about. Like, what Ethan loves... He talks about all the time. Sour Patch Kids. If you've never seen him with a Sour Patch Kids box, look out. Um, Indian food. If you haven't gone to Cranberry and had Indian food with him, you're probably not in his inner circle. Bacon double cheeseburgers with extra bacon. Um, Yeah, um, when Ethan went to college, he had a crisis of faith where the Lord met him. Um, And he went to seminary and got a solid foundation. Um, And he came to know and love another thing. It was the good news of Jesus that we specifically are made right with God um, being given a righteousness that's not our own um, by justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Um, And like the Sour Patch Kids and the Baconators, you can't stop Ethan from talking about this because it has changed his life. Um, And his work these past ten years, listen to what everybody says, it's the gospel, it's about Jesus, um, which is what's really happened here. Um, It has changed thousands of people's lives. Um, On that Sunday afternoon in 2006... God must have looked down, smiling with giddy inside of him. Um, We, those of us who are there, being afraid. um, God breathing life into something new um, and gospel favor for a work done faithfully. Um, Who but God could have seen, who but God could have known what would happen tonight? Um, Ethan, as all of you know, can be a little stressed out sometimes and, um, and anxious about a lot of things. Um, but what needs to be said tonight about Ethan is that um, he chose courage over fear um, and trust over doubt um, and willingness over insecurity in his own life to, uh, to do what he did. And so we mark that time tonight and what happened and we declare with gladness what happened here. Um, and we thank the Lord for what has happened. Um, I, want to, uh, I want to end with a weird passage of Scripture that you're like, why would you talk about this? Um, and I want to make sure that I have it in front of me. And it's not there. Luke chapter 10. I will summarize it. Um, after Jesus sent out the 72. Um, he sent them out. They came back and they said, look at what we did. Even the demons obeyed us, um, and Jesus looked at them and said, um, "How he reacted to that was very interesting." He goes, "Guys, um, I was there and saw Satan get kicked out of heaven. I was there and I saw that. Um, do you not know that um, that I'm going to protect you and nothing is going to harm you? Don't be ab- don't be excited about the things that you do, but be excited about." the fact that your name is written in the book of life. We don't write the names, but we help people's names be written there. And so I want to say thank you to Ethan, but above all, thanks to God what he's done here.
3: I really toiled over what to say uh, in this address, uh, but after much uh, prayer-enriched consideration, I concluded that what I wanted to offer from my heart is just public thanks, uh, and, and thanks regarding that core reason why we together exist, to give thanks for this church and God's work in it, and the current that moves us along. You know, it's a very sublime thing and a real gift from the Spirit, being able to see God's intersections within one community over a decade. I see uh, your faces, and I can instantly recall a multitude of life-altering conversations, of, uh, of personal breakthroughs, of intense tears, and some really good parties. Uh, uh, And I can can see the faces of people who have had their bodies restored by God. I can see people who were suicidal and who are still here. I can see people that I visited in the hospital who were in a place of hopelessness. And they're not hopeless anymore. And I can see people whose marriages were about to dissolve. But they're not dissolving. And I look back on that with great... um, Gratitude. And I think of my friend and studying compatriot Paul Cooper, who is as adventurous as I am, timid, who got me into this business in the first place. And I think of uh, I think of all those senior wardens who have had to put up with me. You know, Gillis and Colin and and now. Poor Cliff, um, and I and I think of all those families that have poured their energies and love into this parish. I think of all our musicians who who are so easy to work with. I mean, what kind of a miracle is that? And then I, I think of you know Pat, who's been playing for years for us, and I think of uh, Emily, who runs probably the finest women's ministry in Pennsylvania. I mean, there's like so many things that are happening that the Lord is doing, and I'm I'm i I consider with strong emotion the enormous contribution of Eric Rhodes uh to this parish who has invested his his heart his energy his spiritual power in this place and i I think of Elizabeth Messer and her ministry to students, which is just constant and she works too much. you have to stop her i mean she's just it's ridiculous um but uh and most of all, I know this is cliche, but I really mean it. I think of my wife, who is uh, just this amazingly um, gracious, loud Italian um, with a heart of gold and, uh, yeah, no. yeah, that's right, I know, she, you're right, subtlety is your middle name,
1: <laughs> but it's good for
3: me, you know, it's good for me, uh, but I stare tonight at you, and I remember you, and I think about you all the time, and I I, I think of us as a cobbled together, you know, Ebenezer from God, those old uh, monuments that were commanded to be built in the Old Testament, where you just stack rocks up, and, the, and every time somebody looks at it, you can tell them the story of what happened, because it wasn't all your story, it's a story of how God brought you through, uh, of how God moved you from one place to another place. And uh, so I I give glory to um, God tonight. I'm entitling this evening's address The Mathematics and the Music of the Gospel. Uh, It is this gospel, both in its mathematics, that is its theology, and in its music, that is its effect, its on-the-ground effect in our lives. That is what has shaped our various stories into a, into a, a united story, into a united church. So, indulge me tonight and let me recall our common foundation, the veritable reason that this church came into being. And please permit me to boast in the Lord uh, who loved even me and you too.
1: The gospel
3: is the way uh, that the saving work of Jesus is talked about, it has numerous aspects. Uh, God's kingdom that threatens the false kingdoms of this world is the gospel. God's um, breaking in to defeat and destroy death is the gospel. God's ending of moral corrosion in our hearts and lives is the gospel. But but I think that the underlying gospel focus of the New Testament, certainly of St. Paul, It's simply that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has publicized his intention toward humanity. Namely, that intention is that God does not come to abuse us, hurt us, or annihilate us. Instead, he makes us into new creations through wild, unfettered absolution. One of the ways scripture describes the nature of absolution is through the language of accounting. Really. Uh, I call this heavenly mathematics. And it is calculated well for us in the fourth chapter of Romans, which was read to us tonight. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Three parts of this sublime equation. I'll be brief. Part one the deficit. The ground zero human dilemma, according to scripture, is our all-too-natural bent toward ungodliness. That is, we often abandon the life-giving commands of God in order to march to the beat of a drunken, deranged drummer, one that promises to lead us back to Eden, but who instead leads us into a dry ditch in a boxed canyon, one that lacks plants, food, and irrigation, But we have stumbled forward on this dusty death trap for so long that even if we wanted to turn around and put all our efforts into it, we have become too tired and weary to do so. We eventually find ourselves lost, starved, helpless, and alone. We become tired, irritable, and reactive, and no amount of coping mechanisms can quell our parched mouths and empty stomachs for long. We have squandered our energies, our lives, and have run up a debt from which we cannot recover To quote, the 8th century prophet, all we like sheep have gone astray, everyone, to his own way. Well, everybody but one. Part two of the equation, the surplus. Enter the other man. The other man is a magnetic force of unnervingly good quality. He is, after all, so unlike us. He doesn't walk like us, speak like us, think like us, feel like us, and he reacts differently than any person on the planet. This other man has no ear for deranged drummers nor their beckoning rhythms. He follows his own drum, which thuds out rhythms of compassion for renegades, failures, hookers, and scammers. He never uses people for his own ends, nor does he manipulate people for popularity, money, influence, sex, or supremacy. He has a matchless authority, but he doesn't employ it for self-preservation. This other man has the highest moral acumen and ideals, but he doesn't shame people who cannot ascend the heights of holiness. He is unafraid of our offensive behaviors. Instead, he huddles uh, to tax collectors who live in pyramids of money, and he actively protects (laughs) loose women from their own death sentences. What's more, this other man believed that his greatest achievement Would not come from his words nor his cures, but from his grisly death, which he interpreted uh, as a universally relevant ransoming act. He let himself die. He let himself be punctured into the timber of the cross, and in that place was smothered to death by the hatred of the world. He was the lamb without blemish, the demolished son of God. And yet this other man's life was stronger than the reaper. And he returned to his own world as the scarred, undying Savior King. The subject and surplus of Christianity is, praise be to God, not us, but this other man whom we know as Jesus. Part three of the equation, the result. The deficit meets the surplus, and a glorious sum uh, is rendered. This other man's life, his noble qualities, his affecting love, his moral consecration, and his other's centered demise was so infinite in its value that it could not be contained in his own person. In the strange mathematics of heaven, the character and devastation of this man counts, to use that accounting term, for all who are unable to live the life prescribed by Christ himself. For them, that is for us, an immeasurable sum has been deposited in our overdrawn, deficit rife accounts. God counts, or reckons us, as solvent, perfectly solvent. We are given a fortune to replace our debt, not balancing out at zero, but inheriting the world. From God's perspective, it's as if we always made the right calls, always loved with heart, always stood our ground, always had right motives, and always kept even the smallest promise. We are clothed with a garment white as lightning. What is devastatingly remarkable, and at one level disturbing, is that the caste God chooses to justify is already deemed by him as guilty. In a way, this makes no moral sense. It would make far more sense for God the judge to justify, that is to acquit, those who are truly innocent. That's what judges are paid to do declare the innocent of charges, and publicly declare and vindicate them as righteous. But this judge, not hell-bent, but is heaven-bent, on another agenda, God the just has, in his crucified and risen Son, become the justifier of offenders. God has, for loving reasons which are too grand and mysterious to fathom, granted insolvent people the unblemished solvency and legitimacy of his own Son. We're returning to our previous metaphor, our dry ditch, our boxed canyon, which ensured our slow demise is now flooded with the fresh life-giving waters of Canaan. Heaven's gracious flood is indiscriminate, flowing into even the most unworthy places. This is a forgiveness that bypasses fair play, decency, and good manners, even good sense. It rewards all the day laborers, the type A busybodies who arrive at 7 a.m. drinking their coffee and the hungover slackers who can barely make it at 4.30 p.m. It rewards them all with the same wage. It lets sorrowful, hand-wringing, excommunicant mafia men who pray in secret next to Pharisees off the hook for all their crimes. It runs in public streets to embrace a child who has wasted his life doing things that can hardly be whispered in a confessional. This flood does not come to us because we've worked hard, saved well, graduated with honors, parented respectfully, or lived the, with the right political signs in our lawns.
1: <laughs>
3: Instead, this gift is received by faith, by trust, not perfect trust, trust the size even of a mustard seed, Faith in the legitimizing Christ, legitimizes us. For all of us who fear that after all the wrong turns, the bad romances, the cheap lapses, that our lives, when all is said and done, are a great disappointment to God. He does not share our perspective, and never will. We call this reckless, arguably irresponsible accounting, this glorious unfair unfair treatment of us, We call it grace. It is this grace which becomes our everlasting Gibraltar. This grace does not budge nor change with our moods. It forever depends only upon one thing, and that one thing happens to be the surest of all things the pardon of Christ achieved on the cross. And this is why I and we can boast in the Lord. This grace is the heart and home of Christianity from which we never depart or mature beyond. It is the house in which we grow develop change think new thoughts pray read study it's the place that makes it safe to admit that we fail Mary Hayes High Churchman and women cover your ears. Whom I call the blessed mother, uh, the canon of our the once uh, one-time canon of our diocese, whom I love very deeply, has has been a steady friend to me. There was a time during the first year of this plant that was very hard for me, and I didn't know if I would make it. Some of you have been through experiences like that. It was a bad time, and I was filled with self-doubt. And in front of her, I was conversationally flogging myself. Some of it was rightful, some of it was over the top. But she, in her rather New York-esque fashion, interrupted me when I was vlogging and said, will you stop saying that? I refuse to see you that way. You are a good, gifted priest. She wasn't entirely right. Sorry. (laughs) We can spar afterwards. But, But she regarded me. It's something that I didn't yet feel. And there is great power when God comes to you. And this is the truth in the phrase that He comes to you as you are, not as you should be, because none of us are as we should be. And when He regards you as righteous in the place of your own decadent depravity, it alters things. It gets in the bloodstream. The power of that positive regard impacted me at that time very deeply, never forgotten. This is the mathematics of heaven. We are solvent because of a solvent Christ. But it is more than mathematics, just a beautiful idea or a controversial idea that we can spar about. It's more than just right theology and in, in right systematic order. The mathematics of heaven becomes the music of the heart. It is like a beloved song that we belt out in our cars when we're alone. For me, it's Meatloaf. I'm unapologetic. He's the greatest musical artist who's ever lived. Um,
1: Just saying. Uh,
3: It is the music which reminds you of your dearest friends, the most amazing meal you've ever tasted, which may have been tonight's, and the loftiest experiences of your whole life. A music which gets beneath the skin. The grace of God intends to cure as certainly as it pardons. This is grace that liberates us from the sordid, grace that loves us back to life, grace that offers us, to quote one Presbyterian, the expulsive power of a new affection. Grace unchains the melody of the harp. One of the most moving illustrations of the music of the gospel comes in the dialogue between Don Quixote and Aldonza in the play The Man of La Mancha. In the play, Aldonza is a trollop, sleeping with nearly every man in the prison, sometimes for money and sometimes for pure entertainment. She's lost every stitch of self-respect and is filled with guilt, shame, and self-hatred because of her promiscuous sexual life. Don Quixote strides into her life and, for unselfish reasons, attempts to befriend her and offer her a sense of self-respect and purpose. All his efforts fail. He he coins a a charming nickname for her. He calls her in Latin Dulcinea, which means my sweet little one. And other times he calls her my lady to give her a sense of inherited nobility. One day he sees her from afar and calls out both names. Dulcinea! My lady! She glares at him and in a rage storms down the steps jabs into his chest and says in a voice seething with contempt my lady i'm not your lady i'm not any kind of lady i was spawned in a ditch by a mother who left me there naked and cold and too hungry to cry i never blamed her i'm sure she was hoping that i'd have the good sense to die and then of course there's my father I'm told that young ladies can look to their fathers with maidenly pride. Mine was some regiment here for an hour. I can't even tell you which side. So of course I became as befitted my delicate birth, the most casual bride of the murdering scum of the earth. And you dare to torment me with my lady? I'm told that a lady has modest and maidenly airs and a virtue I somehow suspect that I lack. It's hard to remember those maidenly airs in a stable when you're under a man's attack. Take the clouds from your eyes, Don Quixote, and see me as I really am, a kitchen trollop, reeking with sweat, born on a dung heap to die on a dung heap, a strumpet that men use and forget. Now, if you feel that you no longer see me quite at my virginal best, Cross my palm with a coin. And I'll willingly show you the rest. But stop it. For God's sake, stop it. Can't you see what your gentle insanities do to me? Rob me of anger and give me despair. Hate and abuse I can take and give back again. But tenderness I cannot bear. So Don't come after me with that sweet... Olcenea, you call. I'm only Aldonza. I know I'm only a whore. Aldonza is all that I'll ever be until the ending of the world or the ending of me. Don Quixote stares at her with great love. And then softly speaks the justifying word: "Tis not so, my lady. never so. for I love thee with my whole heart." Aldonza is wonderstruck, becomes utterly silent, chin down slowly lumbering from the stage into the middle of the audience. She says, from this day forward, my name is no longer Aldonza. It's Dulcinea. Yes, I am Dulcinea. Dulcinea now and forevermore. Dulcinea unto the ending of the world. she encountered something that came from the outside. Something, someone who regarded her as beautiful, holy, and true. And it changed everything. And you may not share Aldanza's life experience. You may have a different story. But we've all got a story. And we've all had an encounter And in some real way, the mathematics of heaven has become the music of the heart. It's not just in a text, and it's not just about thinking rightly. It's about trusting something that has power to change us into the image and likeness of the one who gave his life away. The gospel is our mathematics. It is our music. It is our script. It is our song. And this is why Grace Anglican came into being. The gospel gave several people courage to try something new. The gospel caused us to face our fears and follow Christ into uncharted territory. The gospel inspires us to do battle with the darkness within and without. The gospel gives us power to be vulnerable with each other and not pretend. The gospel provides the creative power to try new things and yield to God. The gospel frees us to let go, to give our lives away even wastefully. And the gospel gives us a new identity, one that will never, ever tarnish with time. Now, what is that identity? I mean, when everything is stripped away, when I'm not wearing my slimming matrix outfit, when you're not <laughs> here, when you're s- stripped there before God, who are we there be- be- before the eternal visage? Who, who are you? I can say this with theological certainty that before God you are not a Protestant or Catholic. You're not high church or low church. You're not extremely faithful or somewhat doubting. You're not blue-collar or white-collar. You're not learned or common. You're not devout or rebellious. You're not a conservative nor a progressive. Who are you? You are the one whom Jesus loves. You are Dulcinea until the ending of the world.
1: Thank you.